This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm your host, Amy Brown. According to the Maine Coalition to End Domestic Violence, here in Maine, a domestic violence assault is reported to law enforcement roughly every two hours. And according to a 2018 report by the Domestic Abuse Homicide Review Panel, for more than 10 years, almost half of the homicides here in Maine were caused by domestic violence. It's the past, past 10 years and more. 16 of the 37 people who were murdered in Maine from 2016 to 2017 were killed by a family member or an intimate partner. My guest today is Patricia McLean, and you may know her as an accomplished photographer, and you may also know parts of her personal story as a survivor of domestic violence, as they have played out in the media. Her abuser is a celebrity, and so her story was shared far and wide. And while that spotlight may have caused some of us to withdraw, Patricia instead picked up her camera and a recorder and went out to help other women tell their stories on a website she's putting together, has put together, called Finding Our Voices. It's at findingourvoices.net. Welcome to Maine Currents, Patricia. Thank you, Amy. Thank you for having me on. What was the process like of deciding to do this project? Well, I guess it was very strange because for 29 years, um, it was a big secret in my household. Um, there was emotional and physical abuse for the whole 29 years. But I didn't really see myself as a domestic abuse victim. I just thought it was, the you know, he could be a jerk sometimes, you know. And, and um, I guess what happened was... Um, after he was arrested, um, well, one thing that happened was I did make a call to a domestic abuse agency, um, and I started talking to some people there, and I, I, I realized the dynamic of a domestic abuse and, and what um, was going on. And I think what really opened my eyes was I went to a support group in Bangor at the Bangor um, domestic abuse agency they had a support group and we were sitting together and I hadn't really talked about my situation to anybody and there was a person on the right and she was covered with tattoos and her lover had been a a woman police officer and there was someone in the room who was homeless and um I would not have thought we lived you know up on a hill and we had four houses and I wouldn't have thought that um there was an, a, a lot of commonality necessarily, but as I talked about my situation, they all sh nodded their heads as they talked about their situation. I nodded my head, and we were the same thing was happening happening to us. So that that was part of it. And then the other part was when the news came out about my situation. It was worldwide news about the arrest. Um, all of a sudden women started coming up to me and telling me about the domestic abuse in their lives. And it was pretty amazing because I realized this is going on all around me and I never knew this. It, it was people that I knew as acquaintances and people I knew I had known for decades, people I had known really well, and I never knew that that was going on with them. They never knew it was going on with me. and. Um, I decided that it's because I was quiet and they were quiet and we were all quiet and uh, the silence doesn't ser didn't serve anybody except the abuser. 
And um, we need to start talking, and then we'll realize how much of this there is. We'll realize we're not alone, and um, we'll realize what, what we're in and, you know, help everybody to, you know, be able to escape the situations and deal with it and understand it and all that stuff. So being under sort of, I don't want to say microscope, sort of being in a fishbowl, being so observed, it could have been something that was really overwhelming, and maybe it was still overwhelming in addition to being a situation that motivated you to speak out. Well, I think, yeah, I think that when I filed for a um, protection from abuse order, I got a call after he had been arrested, and the, the, the victim's advocate, the DA's office, asked me to come in, and, and I, I didn't know anything about protection from abuse orders, and she, she suggested I come in, so I filled it out. And in it described some of what had been going on in the marriage in addition to the assault that he was arrested for. And the next morning, it was, it was in the Bangor Daily News, Steve Betts um, published my protection, the details of my protection from abuse order, and I've heard that that hardly ever happens. I mean, I thought it was just for the court's sake. That could have, that was like probably the most, one of the most devastating things that ever happened to me is to pick up the paper and see these d really private details um, splashed across the media and then picked up, you know, by bigger, uh, more national, international media. So, yeah, it was absolutely devastating. Um, but that's the other thing is that the problem with domestic abuse is that the victim feels a lot of shame. And I, I did feel shame. I was embarrassed. And it was only after talking to other women that I realized this is not my shame. This is his shame. It's their shame. It's the abuser's shame. And then I really felt good about um, trying to dispel that and destigmatize and get rid of the stereotype. And one of the things is, like Donna Ferrato did this wonderful series, black and white series. I don't know if you've, you're aware of it, um, like maybe 30 years ago or something. And it's uh, the cover of the book is a woman with a black eye. And so I think that's a stereotype that people have. And, and she's pitiful. She's like crying. She's got this black eye. And I was, I, I would be, first of all, I never had a black eye. And also, I don't think of myself as a pitiful person and, or a weak person. And so I think that was a stere that's the stereotype out there when actually the woman that came up to me and told me about their situations um, are super strong you know, very accomplished a lot of times, really intelligent. I mean, we're just like you, and, like everybody, we're every woman. And so that was important to get out there too, I think. Mm. That we are every woman, that could almost be a slogan. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. And all the different demographics and... Well, that's what I, I'm doing with my um, project, which is Finding Our Voices, Breaking the Silence of Domestic Abuse. It's photo portraits and audio recordings of uh, women from all over Maine, all walks of life, um, we have 79-year-old um, Mary Lou, and sh her abuser was a University of Maine professor. And um, then 19-year-old uh, Sydney, who is a Hampshire um, college student, um, it's just, uh, you know, an architect, a former TV news anchor, um, someone who's a corrections officer. So it just, just does show you that it just happens to, across the board. Right, right. And so how hard was it to find these not only locate these women because you're saying a lot of people came up to you to share their stories because yours had been made public whether you wanted it to be or not but to convince them to be part of this project that's not just a website we're going to talk a little bit more about the traveling exhibition so they're being very much uh, their stories are being shared widely now how hard was it to convince people to do that or was that easier than you expected 
Well, what, what, how it really got started, I guess, was um, I was at my hairdresser, uh, Kate Chapman. She's been my hairdresser for about 15 years, and it had been just maybe a couple of months after the arrest, and I was ki still keeping a low profile, and um, she just said, um, I've been there, and then she told me that she, 25 years ago, she had um, married this guy, and he took her to Idaho, and they were down a dirt road. There was no phone, no electricity, and um, he, she wasn't allowed to leave the island with her with their baby. And it took uh, the Coast Guard and the um, to, uh, New Hope uh, for Women and uh, the Sheriff's Office, like a, an absolute coordinated, um, massive effort to get her off the island and away from him. And then she said she's always wanted to tell her story. And so that's, I think, the spark that I thought, wow, um, maybe, you know, we can, I can start telling women's stories. Because I'm a photojournalist, and before that I was um, telling the stories of recovering drug addicts and homeless to just destigmatize that those uh, communities. So that's where I thought about it. And we quickly kind of pulled together like four or five people, um, including um, the first wife of her abuser and... Um, couple of others, and they dropped out for uh, various reasons. They didn't uh, feel totally comfortable with it. But so for, a w and then my neighbor Meg, and we're going to hear her story, I think, on the air uh, this session, uh, this time, um, she uh, gave me a call. Oh, what I did is I put uh, something out on my Facebook, I think, saying that I was looking for women to share their stories. So some, some friends of mine got in touch with me, maybe, maybe two, but then it kind of stopped, and I was worried, and I was thinking, well, we don't really have a project if we only have like three woman and I got in touch with the main coalition to end domestic violence and they came on board with me and I've been working with Regina who does com uh, communications for them who's wonderful and she's been working with me from the beginning and they posted something on their Facebook and so that's when I got a few more um, people and um, we had a group and all along like I, I, I was thinking well you know we still need some more and how is this going to happen but it, it just and then toward the end, when I had a Camden Public Library um, show scheduled for Valentine's Day this year, just even in the last few months, a, a number of people who happened to be like good friends of mine just revealed that they their situations, and we pulled together, um, we had about 15 for that, and now we're up to 21. So it's just, it's, it's rolling along. Will you continue to add faces and stories to your website and your exhibition? Yeah, I think so, because I, as I take this around, um, the wonderful thing about Camden, the Camden show, is I think eight of the women were local, and it was really um, powerful, I think, for someone to walk into that room and to look around and see people they recognized, right. and they had no idea about right. that yeah. about them. So wherever I take it, I do like to have some local women in there, and so I think I will continue to add um, as I take it around the, 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 the state. You mentioned the session. I just want listeners to know what uh, what uh, Patricia's referring to is that we're going to do this in two parts. This is part one. Part two will be airing as a special on Thursday, August 29th at 10 a.m. We'll have some of the voices today on the program, and we'll have some more when we continue because there are so many voices, and they deserve to be heard. Thank you. I, I really like that um, concept. Um, part of the settlement in my uh, divorce is that I cannot um, write about my husband for a publication. And he did try really hard to get me uh, a non-disclosure so I wouldn't be able to talk. 
and um, things were very like uh, they, they, at the end it was just very everything was happening really quick and there was a lot of pressure on me and um, I, I really feel like if I had agreed to that I just think I would have died um, keeping quiet for so long and and still having to moving forward would have just killed me so I, I just I'm so happy for the ability to to use my voice and um, that's a really powerful thing it's also been really public, and a lot of people will uh, will know from social media that uh, just in recent months he attempted to get your exhibition shut down, I believe. There's been a lot of public uh, backlash, I guess, from him regarding your being public and being involved in this project and the response from everyone that I was aware of on social media as that was happening was to make sure that your stories got shared even further. It was kind of like a uh, response to him trying to shut you down was making people even more mobilized to make sure that everyone knew about this. Well, thank you. And um, Janine Lubber Oren, and she was she's uh, from Casco, and she was one of the first people to get in touch with me after the Facebook post on the Main Coalition, and um, she wrote that. Uh, while this was, she, she was saying that he could try, you know, it's not no longer just me. He's not just trying to shut me down. He's trying to shut a lot of people down with this because of the project. And she said, you're, you're watching abuse in real time, you know, for him to be the, doing that because it is all about power and control. Yeah. Why don't we play one of the voices? Okay. Do you want to set this up? I think we're going to hear from Becca first, right? Yeah, uh, Becca... Um, my my best friend uh, Carol uh, Matthews she um, she died about three and a half years ago from a brain tumor. Um, her daughter is Becca, and I've known uh, Becca you know since she was I guess five is when I met Carol when Becca was five. The last time that the three of us were together, Becca, me, and Carol, um, what, what happened actually is. Just about a couple of months before my Camden show was opening, Becca came to see me. Um, she, she came to visit me, and um, she told me that when she had been last, when she visited her mother, when the, the three, the last time that the three of us were together, she was in a situation with this guy who was so controlling that she would have to call him um, every hour. She would have to message him a photo of herself so he would know where she was. And she was doing that while we were together. And um, and then, meanwhile, her mother, I didn't even cons put it together as her being in an abusive relationship at the time, but her mother was had a boyfriend who was, while she was dying, was so cruel to her. He would say the most horrible things, call her horrible names. So she was in an abusive relationship. Becca was in an abusive relationship. And I was in an abusive relationship. And here we were, none of us knowing that about, about each other. And um, anyway, this is um, this is Becca's story. All right, and I'm going to just let listeners know that some of these clips may bring up some really strong feelings in you as a listener, and so I just want to warn you ahead of time about that. I think these are important voices to hear, but do what you need to do to take care of yourself, and we'll be giving out phone numbers and websites that you can go to to find help if this is something. Yes, Patricia? Oh, and I did want to say also that if somebody, if the, the point of the photos and the audio, um, they work together. So if somebody wants to go on findinourvoices.net, uh, you know, and look right. at the photo and look at the person's face while they're listening to this, the audio, they can do that as well. Right, right. And this is Becca, uh, B-E-K-A-H. You'll find her photo right there on findingourvoices.net. He was a gentleman. He pulled the chair out. He opened doors. Um, he, 
paid for dinner, everything. He was he was a really sweet, nice guy. Girls had messaged me on Facebook. One girl said that she had been thrown into a car by him and punched in the face. In that first year, I didn't really believe that because he wasn't like that with me. It wasn't until we moved to Denver and I was away from everyone I knew that things took a turn for the worse. He didn't like my friends and I thought, oh, he just really likes me. <laughs> he wants to hang out with me instead of them. It started when he was drunk and he threw a beer bottle at my head and it missed my head and went into the wall. And then in the morning when he was sober, he apologized and patched the wall up. Um, actually, I patched the wall up. Then after that, it started with little um, like slaps here and there, um, pinching, things like that. And then when he started getting drunk, he started punching me in the stomach. There's some days that were really good days and you have fun with that person and then they apologize and nothing happens for two weeks and they said that they were sorry and you think that everything's going to be okay and then it happens again. My mom had talked to me about it. She's like, never let yourself be in that situation. Don't ever let a man put you down. Um, but when it happens so gradually, you don't even realize you're in that situation until you're like, oh shit. <laughs> My mom was really sick and... Um, I came home after she had had brain surgery and I had to be here and stay for a month to take care of her. And while I was here, he didn't want me to leave the house. He said I was going back for a reason and I wasn't allowed to see any of my friends. Um, he would call me at any point and say, take a picture of where you are right now and send it to me. So I know exactly where you are. I was pissed off and really frustrated with the situation, but it was more just, I didn't want him to be angry. I didn't want to have to have a fight about it. Um, so it was easier just to do what he asked. Growing up, I, I left home and I um, went sailing and I traveled around the world as a chef and as a nanny. It was really weird having somebody tell me what to do, like, all the time. I stopped smiling. I had my head down all the time looking at the ground. It'd be like somebody coming in through the door at a restaurant. Why are you looking up? Why are you looking at that person? I just became much more serious. And we got a dog together and he started being abusive towards the dog. That's when I really realized that this isn't supposed to be happening. I actually one night grabbed a kitchen knife when he was hitting me and put it to his throat. And I said, if you ever touch me again, I'm going to leave you. It was like a few days later, he grabbed me and threw me up against a wall and choked me and punched me in the stomach. And the next morning I dropped him off at work. I went home, packed up everything I could fit into our mutual car, put the dog in the front seat and drove away. So that was Becca. You mentioned that her mom was also being at least emotionally abused at that time, but her mom was giving her advice. Oh, that's maybe not true. recognizing her situation. I didn't even pick, pick up on that. Let me say that. The, and the other thing I, I think I, it's important to point out that um, there's all kinds of abuse, and emotional abuse a lot of times is, you know, could be more devastating than the physical abuse because, um, you know, the bruises heal. Um, well, some, some of the women that I've met have lifelong physical injuries because of the abuse, but the emotional abuse is, is, is so devastating, and that's the other thing is women have to realize that um, just because, you know, emotional abuse is 
is domestic abuse, and it doesn't need to be um, physical for it to be an abusive relationship. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Maine Currents on WERU. My guest today is Patricia McLean, and we're talking about her project, which is FindingOurVoices.net and also a traveling exhibition. So how was it for you to be listening to these stories over and over again while it was so your experience was so fresh and, and not yeah. even really sort of completely ending? There was still contact. and yeah. that, That's a good point. I mean... So what happened is I, I kind of started the project, like, you know, as I said, with, when I was sitting with Kate uh, in, her, in the hairdresser's chair, and then I, I just had to take a break from it because my situation was still pretty volatile. Um, there was a lot of uh, goings on with the court, and, and the thing about abusers is that if they're no longer physically around you, they're going to find a way to keep abusing you um, uh, you know, in this case through the court process, and I still had my things at the house, and it was just really, he was making things really, really difficult for me, continuing to do so. So I, I and then the other thing is uh, when I would talk to some, to these women, it was interesting that if somebody was interested in being the project, how I, I would do it is I would have an initial phone conversation with them. And we'd get on the phone and um, it was more just to introduce each other but they would start telling me their story and many times really we'd be on the phone for like a couple of hours because in most of the cases it was the first time they were really telling anybody and there's so much to say and they just I know what it's like like you just you just want to talk about it and um, so listening to the into the woman it was now I find it a lot easier but uh, I guess the word that they use is triggering, so it would be very triggering for me to um, hear the stories. And a couple of times I just had to tell the woman that I, I just had to take a break and explain that this was triggering for me. I'm sorry, but um, maybe we could um, start, pick up another time. But um, the other thing I like to tell women is time does heal, and I do find that finally, like, I'm not ruminating and I'm not, um, and that I can listen to women's stories and not get triggered immediately. So uh, that that's that's the good news, to, to let women know that as difficult as it is, um, when you first leave the relationship, it just, it really just gets better. I noticed on your website, one of the sections is breathe. Yeah. Talk about that. Well, I wish I actually that I had known about that um, when I uh, first left my situation, because I just didn't know how to calm myself down. I, I started swimming and laps was, was really helpful, but I... Um, I, I, I guess I, I, it was just, I just didn't know what to do. I was in such a state. It was so, it was so hard, um, you know, dealing with the lawyers and then you're still being abused and then the court system and every, you know, there's, the system is really not designed to, to be helpful a lot of times. One thing that I did find helpful actually was the hotline at the um, Maine Coalition to End Domestic Violence. And I would say the most wonderful people are in these agencies and, if a woman is still in her situation or if she's out of her situation or whatever it is, if there's been abuse that she's trying to grapple with, um, just to reach out to the domestic abuse agency in your area. You could go to the MCEDV, Maine Coalition to End Domestic Violence, um, website, and they'll let you know the agency in your area and calling the hotline. And even if you've been out of the relationship for many years, it doesn't matter. I mean, just they're they're there for you. And I did find that really helpful because they... They understand, they believe you, um, they get it, and it's, it's very uh, therapeutic to be able to uh, talk about it uh, with them. Again, mcedv.org, and the hotline number, 
that you can call and then they'll put you in touch with whoever from the different uh, groups from around the state geographically they're located in different places but this is a one overarching number that you can call 24 hours a day it's free it's confidential is 1-866-834-HELP which comes out to 4357 so again if you weren't ready to write that down and we'll give it again later 1-866-834-4357 there's also uh there's a wabanaki project and for uh, the Penobscot Nation specifically, they have a domestic and sexual violence advocacy center, and their local number is 631-4886. Again, 631-4886. Amy, I'm wondering, since you mentioned the Wabanaki, um, one of the women in the group is um, from Indi uh, Indian Island, and her name is Donna. I don't know if you wanted to play her audio. Okay, yeah, let's play Donna next. Do you uh, want to say anything else about it before we do? Um, Pat Grafham uh, r referred her to me, and she runs the Domestic Violence Agency on Indian Island, and she is a phenomenal uh, woman, and um, just pointing out how incredible um, the people who work at these agencies are. Uh, and Donna is, um, I just, I really like her a lot. From starting the age of three, my sisters and I, or just even being Native American, we were just made to feel like the scum of the earth. My mother was full-blooded uh, Apache, uh, San Carlos tribe. My biological father, he was Caucasian, and his side of the family was, I guess you'd say, really racist. My mother was very kind. She was, that was the only love we had. All I have is memories of my father um, beating up my mother. We'd look out the window, and he's pulling her out of the car by her hair, and then he finally shot and killed her in front of us. So, and I was nine years old at the time when he did that. The first abusive boyfriend would have been uh, my oldest daughter's father. And I was 22. And he, the first time I remember, I didn't park the car right and somebody had opened the door and nicked his door or put a dent in it or something. It was very small, but he was irate over that. And he had, I remember he backhanded me, then he slapped me and he uh, threw me on the floor and like he started choking me. And I remember my throat being sore. I do remember that. And um, I end up kick, trying to kick him off and he jumped up. And I took off running out the door. Well, he came after me, you know, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I don't know what came over me. You got me so upset. And I end up going back. My first marriage to my husband, where I had three kids from, um, my daughter, Kindessa, the oldest one, was raised in that environment where she was constantly calling 911. This happened to me three times with the gun, three times. When I met my last, well, my third husband, I was, it was so amazing. I thought it was like that once-in-a-lifetime love. Well, his thing was, it was subtle on how his abuse was. You know what I'm saying? It was subtle. He was so, he was really good at manipulating. I am finally away from all this. Um, I can do what 
I want to do now. I can go. I don't have to answer to anybody. My daughter was involved with this guy. Oh, well, thank God he's in jail right now. When he was gone for a weekend, uh, he came back and sent her out to the store and made her go run some errands. So when she came back, there was rose petals all over the floor. There was champagne. There was flowers. There was this. There was that. So what he would do is that he would romance her, I guess you would say, suck her in, and then, you know, turn around, beat the shit out of her, and then ask for forgiveness and cry. Oh, he does love me, but he does care about me. No, he's sick. She saw this with me, you know, that I blame myself for it. Now it's like with my grandkids, at least I will be vocal. I am going to be open about what domestic violence is, making them aware of what is right, what is wrong, because I wasn't able to do that for my kids. One thing I want to say before we go on is from a recent uh, domestic violence training that I went to, I uh, learned something that I wasn't aware of about choking, what a warning sign choking is. If your uh, significant other, uh, I don't know if that's a good word to use for it, especially in this context, but if your uh, partner has in any way attempted to choke you, that is elevates the risks that you're going to be killed by this person substantially. You know, even if that's happened just one time, that's a huge red flag. It also can cause damage that you might not die from immediately, but it could be damage that even potentially kills you down the road. Again, these uh, clips may be triggering. Do what you need to do to take care of yourselves as you're listening to these. And if you would like to call and uh, talk to someone, if you're not sure if you're being abused and you suspect maybe what's happening to you is abuse uh, or not, just give the call 24 hours a day. It's free, it's confidential. The number is 1-866-834-4357. Again, 1-866-834-4357. And the Penobscot Nation's Domestic and Sexual Violence Advocacy Center number is 631-4886. Again, 631-4886. Links to these are also available at Patricia McLean's website. We're talking with her today, findingourvoices.net. There is a section there with resources on it, and uh, you can go there if you're online and check those out and get those phone numbers if you weren't able to write them down quickly enough. You know, as I'm listening to the story and as Dawn is telling her story, thinking about, you know, breaking a cycle multi-generational with women and with them recognizing what is abuse, I wonder how many times you hear the abusers talking about breaking a cycle. You know, this almost implies that it's a responsibility of the women to be aware because men are always going to be like that, but you don't hear that hear very often men talking about this, you know, the uh, my father was an abuser, my grandfather was an abuser, and I'm breaking the cycle, or at least we don't hear it as frequently as we no, hear. No, you're right, you know, and I think that one of the main messages of this is... Um, Let's stop asking, you know, why doesn't she leave? Why don't we ask, you know, why is he beating her up? Right. And because um, it does put it, it does put it on the woman. And the, the thing is, is it's so subtle. It's the, the man, if a man came up to you and he, you know, punched you in the face when he first met you, well, you're not going to start a relationship with him. But um, it's these little steps that pull you into it. And there's something wrong with these men. And we've got to start thinking about that. Maybe even 
the bigger picture of what is it in our society that is producing men that would that are that are acting this way. Right. You got politically active in this cause as well. Do you want to talk a, a little bit about what you've been doing in that regard? Well, I guess the, one of the, the big things is um, Janine Labour-Oren, who's from Casco. She, when I first met her, her, the main thing in her relationship was financial, economic abuse. And when we first talked, like a couple of years ago, she said um, that she is really working to change things in Augusta and have that recognized as part of domestic abuse, but she doesn't think that's going to happen in her lifetime. And um, like a, just a few weeks ago, um, because of a bill that she drafted, and um, she got Jessica Fay, her legislator, to introduce it. it it's now uh, Janet Mills just signed it into law, so uh, that's a groundbreaking bill. And um, so, what does it do exactly? It re- it recognizes uh, economic abuse as part of domestic abuse, and it helps women uh, who have suffered uh, with economic abuse to consider. The thing about these guys is it's, it's, not, it's, it's so multi-pronged, the things that they do. So there's the emotional abuse, you know, putting her down all the time, and then there, and, and, and um, other forms, uh, you know, the isolation, minimizing, and there's the physical abuse. But a lot of times, um, well, Janine's point is that 99% of the time in, um, with, uh, you know, physical abuse, there's also economic abuse. And so you'll find women who um, whose credit is ruined because uh, the guy like ruins her credit or he runs up her credit cards and doesn't pay for it, and there's all kinds of ways that he hurts her financially. And this bill uh, addresses some of those ways and helps rectify that, recognizing it as uh, part of domestic abuse. Because right now, um, Christine, we have her audio here. She. She, she she met up with this guy and she had a relationship with him and then he, you know, ran up her credit bills, cards as I was saying, and she would be getting calls from collections agencies and she wanted to mortgage her home, you know, get a mortgage on her house and, and she wasn't able to because her credit was ruined over this, and she was trying to tell them that it was not her. She didn't do this. This this man did, and they wouldn't listen to her. So this bill would would help a situation like that. So part of what what finding our voices is is it is collective voices. So uh, as we build and we have more voices, we're going to try to get changes in Augusta. Um, Janine got this through and three of the women from Finer Voices did testify for it. And um, there are a lot of other things. I just uh, had two opinion op-eds published in my local paper. From my experience, what I feel needs to be changed in in our courts. And so um, we're going to really work hard on, on, on doing that. And you said Maine Coalition for to End Domestic Violence has been working closely with you as well? Well, Maine Coalition to End Domestic Violence absolutely was uh, working. Andrea, they have somebody there now in Augusta who I think that's all of which that's what she does, that she concentrates on. And they really helped get this bill, um, the LD-748, uh, the economic abuse uh, pushed through. And they are working, I mean, uh, approved and, and um, they are working on other domestic abuse bills. And um, so... Uh, as our group um, identifies uh, things that we want to focus on, we will absolutely, absolutely be working with the uh, main coalition and, and, and collaborating and working, working together to, to, to make, make a difference. And that website again is MCEDV, Main Coalition to End Domestic Violence like, org. Like just if I could mention a few of the things that I feel like absolutely need to be changed, um, they have something called deferred deposition, and it's. 
Um, I mean, it's fine for things like shoplifting, and um, but they're applying it for uh, violent um, domestic assault. And what it means is, like for instance, and my um, Don McLean, my uh, ex-husband, he pled guilty to five domestic abuse charges, including domestic violence assault. The district attorney gave him a deferred deposition plea deal, which meant that he. Um, would plead guilty, and then with good behavior, and I put that in quotation marks because there was no good behavior from his, on his part to me that year he continued to torment me. But um, at the end of that year, his record was actually wiped clean from, they, they wiped the, that clean, so the domestic violence assault was, was taken off his record, and another was another charge was he did end up convicted on three charges, but I just feel that it's so outrageous um, that, that he, you know, beat me up. I had pictures of the bruises. We had pictures of the broken door. I mean, the DA had everything, me willing to testify. And rather than take it to court, and I understand that the, the DAs, like, very rarely take these domestic abuse cases to court. They're all about making plea deals. Um, you know, it's wiped off his record. And let's say he, someone else comes on, on the scene and wants to check someone out and look at their background, they're not going to find these domestic abuse um, convictions. And that's dangerous for the next victim. And um, so I, that's one thing. The deferred deposition, I think, can, should absolutely no longer... It, it, I think it's a travesty that it's applied in domestic violence cases. Again, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. I'm Amy Brown. My guest today is Patricia McLean. Her project, FindingOurVoices.net, uh, combines her photojournalism with some audio clips of people telling their stories of surviving domestic violence. Do you want to uh, hear, should we do Christine next since you just yeah. mentioned her? And uh, and I just, I want to, I don't want to restate this too. I mean, I don't, I think it bears restating that, and especially since people tune in at any given time, that these things are really hard to listen to. They're important to listen to, I think, but you you need to make that decision for yourself and whether or not this is going to trigger you or upset you. Thank you, for, thank you very much, Amy, for doing that. I, I agree that you can't say that too often because um, uh, people, as long as you, you're aware, you know, of what you're going to be listening to. And um, Christine uh, has Christine's gallery. She, it's a framing shop, and she's been framing my pictures for about f at least 15 years. She's a wonderful framer in Lincolnville. And she was framing the pictures for this show. Um, and just as she finished framing them and they were about to come go to the uh, Camden Library where the uh, project was launched in the first exhibit, she mentioned that she had a series of abusive relationships. And so she um, I quickly got her story and her photos so that she could be included. And uh, she's speaking out more and more now and uh, about um, what she went through and how things sh she feels things need to change. And, yeah, here's her story. I wish I had known that a different life was possible and to not stay in those, you know, abusive relationships. I wish I knew that I deserved better before now. I didn't, I didn't learn that until I was 55. I moved to Maine at 23. I met someone named Steve who uh, I found out was beating my dog at night. Yeah. Oh, I got engaged to a wealthy family's son. He said, tell me you love me, and I didn't say anything. And then he kicked me in the spine, kicked me, kicked me, kicked me out of bed. So when I started to leave the bedroom, he got up and he beat me. 
and I and he beat me all the way down the hallway until I locked myself in the bathroom. I stayed in the bathroom all night. In the morning before school, he knocked on the bathroom door and he said, "See you later, honey. Have a good day." Shortly after that is when I met Sophia's birth father. And he just lied about everything. Like there wasn't a thing that came out of his mouth that wasn't a lie. Right after she was born, he sued me for custody of her. And almost got it except that I had had a videotape of him and he was with her when she was about three months old and he was touching her inappropriately and saying inappropriate things and that was actually what wound up going into court like a year over a year later that they had them the judge took his parental rights away and so then 12 years later I found myself in the worst abusive relationship of all with Ed I was in um like a an online divorce chat group support kind of a thing, you know, and he was in there. And so he, we commiserated about our marriages falling apart. Of course, because he was in a divorce chat group, I thought he was divorced, but he wasn't. He never physically assaulted me, but, but he tortured me psychologically. I was so unstable and I started drinking. I started drinking so much. I was ridiculous because I was unhappy in the relationship, but I didn't want to get out of the relationship because I was so dependent on the relationship. I think I just wanted to know that somebody cared about me and he kept saying he cared about me. My last relationship was about four years with um, a man who has severe PTSD. But after so many years of that, I realized that that's not the life I want. I don't want to be off in a corner somewhere with my PTSD and your PTSD. So I ended that relationship. All, all in that year, I was thinking, I'm okay. You know, I'm okay by myself. I'm okay without a man. I'm okay with just my kids. I adore my children. I think it's going to be fine. And then, of course, I met Peter. Well, he talks to me all the time. You know, I, I have all these men that I've been with. I, I never really had conversations with them. They were always talking at me or about me. No one else has ever listened. You know, they, one of the things I remember the most about my mother is I never had her attention, ever. I mean, she would be right in front of me and I'm talking to her and I could tell that she wasn't listening. She was preoccupied with whatever guy or thing was going on in her life. She just got into one catastrophe after another. I mean, just horribly abusive relationships that, that moved right in with us, too. They, you know, and like no time. These guys were living in our house and very abusive to her and to us. Maybe it's because I wanted to prove to myself that I wasn't going to carry on the legacy of abuse. I wanted to have children to kind of redo that whole chapter of my life with, you know, to, to kind of start over and, and how it should be. Listening to whatever they wanted to talk about. You know, Lily tells me about her. She'll wake up in the morning and want to tell me about one of her dreams, and it can go on for three hours, and I won't interrupt her <laughs> because I know what that feels like. You know, and, uh, and, and of course, you're, you've got stuff to do, and you're a mom, and you want to say, okay, can we wrap this up? But I'm like, I'm not going to do it. I'm like, and, and then what happened? <laughs> you know, and then what happened? That was Christine. Again, the phone number uh, if you would like to call and talk with someone, if you uh, feel that you're being abused and, or just have some questions about it, 24 hours a day, 1-866-834-4357. 1-866-834-4357 or out in Indian Island. Uh, the local number is 631-4886 for the Penobscot Nation's Domestic and Sexual Violence Advocacy Center. 
We're talking with Patricia McLean about her project, FindingOurVoices.net. Uh, you found that talking about it is helpful. You've gotten politically active. What other forms of self-care would you recommend to anyone who is uh, es escaping a situation like this or maybe contemplating but still needing to take care of themselves until they get to that point? Well, I would say reach out to other women. You know, I've, the sisterhood that has developed with this project is, is really a beautiful thing. And we are all helping each other stay strong. And um, I, I, I think that that can't be overemphasized. You know, that I think that w women, it would be nice, you know, to stop, like, get away from competing, with, you know, and, and, and really come together as we're doing, um, as we're doing w with this. And um, if, but that just leads me to one more thing I want to say is, if you meet this, meet a guy and he's like, uh, you know, demonizing his first wife or girlfriend, and then you notice some strange things about him, I mean, I think the best thing to do is like call her up because she knows and she's going to tell you like, you know, if, if he was a, an okay guy and they just didn't get along, she'll tell you that because a lot of times the answer is with the previous woman. So that's another way that women, you know, should talk, you know, start to talk with each other. Anytime domestic violence is brought up, there's, you know, comment sections on articles about it or whatever. There are always men who are like, but men are being abused too. And it's never talked about predominantly it's women who are being abused by men. Statistically, it far outweighs any men being abused. And then there's also the issue of, you know, trans folk and, and GLBTQ people in abuse within those different communities. Is this project primarily focused? I actually haven't asked if these are cisgender when women or trans. I don't, you know, it doesn't really matter. But you talk about a community of women. Is that what your focus will continue yeah, to be? Yeah, that, that it will be because you, you just can't be everything to everybody. And my personal experience was uh, with men, a man, man's violence. And you're right that um, every study, uh, vast majority of the violence uh, comes, is from men to women. Hmm. Or to other men, other men, but it's it comes from the the violence is with the men. Okay. We're going to hear more stories when we continue this on August 29th. We have uh, a little bit of time left today to hear uh, one, maybe two more stories. Is there another one that that you'd like? Maybe we can play um, Maggie. Um, yeah, Maggie is one of the most recent ladies that have come on board, and. Um, yeah, this is this is Maggie's story. Okay, again, just letting people know these are hard to listen to. If you've just tuned in, uh, this may uh, be triggering for you, and uh, so I just want you to be advised of that. And, ahead and of time. I would just say that for people who love animals, this is a particularly hard one to listen to. So yeah, just to this, put that warning out there. This was very very difficult for me too. There's there's a lot. Um, I met him when I was 16. I was in a really really bad place in my life. He was a rebel. He would get upset when I would go with my mom to visit my grandmother who lived in Lubeck. He just didn't like that I was gone so long. I was 92 pounds when we first met. He would tell me that if I lost weight that, you know, I would be prettier. I was at a point where I thought I needed to leave. And then two days later, I found out that I was pregnant. It got worse. I remember there was one day I was standing on a chair to get something out of the top cupboard and he kicked the chair 
and I fell. I was just scared. It just... Why did you do that? The emotional abuse went on for years. And then he started to escalate into animals. Throwing a rock one day laughing because he had hit the cat in the head. The cat had a seizure. He thought it was funny. He brought home a dog one day and he wanted to test out his new rifle. I thought he was just going to go out and do target practice or something. I went out and my dog was gone. He was not on the in his house or on his chain. And I went down back behind the house to see where he was. And my dog was was lying in a I I don't even know what you call it. It was a bunch of ferns. He was lying there and he was whining. He was a big dog. He had a very fluffy coat and. It didn't kill him right away. So he went back inside and took his shotgun. And I remember him telling me, dragged, dragged the dog out, get him out of the bushes. And I, I didn't know what else to do. I was so scared. I remember pulling the dog out. And he was, he was whining. And he, he shot the dog after that. I kept thinking, how am I going to get away from this? And I um, I was 23 miles from anywhere. We had no phone. At this point, I was so ashamed. I was just, how did I get here? How did I let it get to this point? And my father's in law enforcement, so it's really... There's so much shame. My brother-in-law was a state trooper. My other brother-in-law was... For the sheriff's department, worked for the sheriff's department here in Hancock County. He bought a AR-15, <clears throat> and I remember him coming out one day with two bullets. And all he did, he said, set one down. And he said Maggie, and he had another one. He set it down and said Darren. And that's all he said. And they were left sitting on my mantle. I didn't dare touch them. And the only he only moved them because my dad had come to visit one day and asked, why are there bullets sitting on the mantle? He had come home from work and I got my nose pierced. I kind of regretted getting my nose pierced. I like I felt like I was too old for it. I was only 22 at the time, but I felt like I was just too old for it. He had thrown my laptop on the floor and my son was sitting on it, pounding on the keys. And I asked, what, what are you doing? Why is my computer on the floor? And... He told me I was a stupid and that he was going to destroy me. He turned around and just, he slapped me. And I remember my son just looking at me, so scared. Look on his face. Something just kind of, I guess you could say it clicked in my brain. Like just, I need to get out of here. And he had gone into the bedroom and he got his 9mm handgun. And he stood in the hallway holding my son, holding the gun behind him. He didn't say anything. And he walked back to the bedroom. And he closed the door. And I just, I didn't know what to do. Do I open the door? What if, is he going to kill my baby? I opened the door and I said, I need to go do laundry. Can I take Darren with me? And he was sitting on the bed with Darren with the handgun beside him. I took Darren and I, I just closed the door. I just remember grabbing things and throwing them in bags. He was charged with domestic violence assault, um, but because 
I only reported that one incident. There was no... He had two days in jail for that. He was supposed to take anger management and didn't. Um, there really was no accountability. I didn't report all the other things because I didn't think anything would happen. I didn't think anybody would ever believe me. They did allow contact. The judge said there was no reason. And even though during the hearing for the protection from abuse order, he talked about how he had taken his gun and held it to the dog's head and shot the dog's brains out. They didn't feel there was any any danger to Darren. I started school to become a victim witness advocate because I wanted to work with survivors of domestic violence. My life has changed so much since then. I have a, a five-year diary, and you're supposed to write in it every day, and I don't. Out of five years, that is the only thing. Well, ten years, actually, that I've written in that, in that diary was just, I got the job. When I went through everything, I went by Margaret. That was what everybody called me. Now I go by Maggie because Margaret's a different person. Maggie's who I am now. Yeah, it's so hard to listen to. And so brave for her to speak out. Oh my God, out. so brave. And that's what these women are doing. I mean, they're stepping up. And as hard as it is to um, speak out, they, they all are doing it because they want to help other women. And um, I mean, there's so many things in that story. Like she was 22 when all this was, had gone on. And that's the other thing that a lot of times this happens and these girls are so young and they're subjected to all these horrors. Um, and, uh, and then the, how horrible that is, what, what he did to her animals um, and how hard that must be to talk about, but you know, to recognize that that's, again, it's not her shame, you know, and right. um, um, one thing I do is I, I, there's like a few components of the, this project, so when I print out the large picture that goes on, on tour, um, the, I give it to the woman to write in her own handwriting uh, something at the bottom of it, and on Maggie's picture she wrote, um, when I speak out, it doesn't spread his poison, it lessens his impact. We just have a couple minutes left, and as we said earlier, we'll be continuing this discussion on August 29th, another Thursday at 10 a.m., and we'll hear more voices. But in the meantime, you have at least one exhibition coming up where people in the local area, if they'd like to go out and see these faces and experience the uh, multimedia presentation of Finding Our Voices, can um, go see that, right? Well, it is going to be on Islesboro for two weeks. Uh, for actually, I think it's just a week, starting um, August fifth at the community center, and um, the big show. Maybe if people want to put this on their calendars, is at the Holocaust and Human Rights Center. It's opening September seventeenth. It'll be there for three months, and uh, it's a big enough venue for uh, all twenty-one. So it's the the complete project will be there, which will be the photos, the audio. And a uh, power and control wheel, each woman, I give a power and control wheel to, to customize and illustrate, to point out the, 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 the details, the specific details of, of what happened with them, just so you walk around the room and you 
just see the common threads. And then if people can keep looking at my website to just for updates, which uh, findingourvoices.net, I update um, the different events that are going on, different things. If anyone's listening and they're inspired to talk to you to tell their story, would you like people to reach out and get in touch? Yeah, um, I welcome anybody who wants to get in touch uh, whatever, for whatever reason to talk to me or share, even just privately. Uh, and they can do that through my website. Okay, again, that's findingourvoices.net. And I just want to make sure that we end with uh, giving that uh, contact information again. You can go to the also the website for the Maine Center to End Domestic Violence at mcedv.org. I'll put these links in the information in the archive section of this program as well. Uh, also, the number that you can call, 24 hours a day, free and confidential, to uh, talk with someone about this is 1-866-834-HELP. That's 1-866-834-4357, 24 hours a day, and Penobscot Nation Domestic and Sexual Violence Advocacy Center number locally is 631-4886. Patricia McLean, thanks for coming in, talking with us today, being willing to do this uh, two-part project here and uh, talking about these really difficult subjects and all of the work that you're doing to put this together. Thank you very much, Amy. You've been listening to Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. Maine Currents airs here live on WERU on the first Thursday of every month, although we will be making an exception, and uh, our next program will be on August 29th at 10 o'clock. You can subscribe to our podcast or listen to archived programs at WERU.org. Stay tuned to your community radio station, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and WERU.org. We've got On the Wing with Mark Dyer coming up next.